0: And so as they've offered or said that they were going to continue to pray for us and pray particularly for the gospel working in and through us, one of the ways that that happens is through the reading and preaching of God's word. So I invite you now to stand in honor of God's word as we read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. This is the word of God, and it is absolutely true. What then shall we say? That the law is sin... For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin." I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your holy word, and we ask now that you would prepare us to not just simply hear your word this morning, but to receive it. We ask that your spirit would use your word, apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And Lord, as we work through this passage together, we ask that not only would you give us understanding and clarity, but as we're reminded that we are still fighting sin, even though we've been set free from sin, that we'd be reminded to look again to Christ, and that we'd be greatly encouraged by him and his sacrifice upon the cross for us, and that he would be glorified and his name would be exalted. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the story from Greek mythology about Sisyphus. This is uh, the picture on the front of the bulletin comes from this story, but this is a man that, uh, on several occasions, actually tricked the gods. one particular occasion, he actually tricked the, the god of death, and as a result of that, there was no death on all the Earth for a period of time while the God of death was in chains. And so the other gods got kind of mad about this, particularly the god of war, because he enjoyed bringing people to war against each other, but it was no longer any fun because no one ever died. And so he came and freed the god of death, who then captured Sisyphus. So Zeus decided to punish Sisyphus, and so what he did, and this is the part of the story I'm sure you've all heard, is he cursed him to, for all eternity to roll a large boulder, to push a large boulder up a mountain. But as soon as it would get near the top, the boulder would fall down to the bottom and he'd have to start all over again. So for the rest of eternity, he was cursed and sentenced to having to push this large rock up a mountain, but never making any progress. And so my question to you this morning is, does your Christian walk ever feel like that? I know mine does. You know, we read the Bible, we pray, we try to fight sin, and no matter what we do or how hard we try, there are times where we don't seem to be making any progress In our faith. We don't seem to be making any progress in our walk with the Lord. We continue to struggle with a particular sin. We continue to struggle to believe in the promises of God. It seems like sin is actually getting the upper hand. So what are we to do? Well, we can despair. We can just simply try harder. We can just give up and quit. If Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin, and we've been hearing about this the last couple of weeks, if Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin, how come our lives don't always reflect that? Well, Paul provides us with an answer to these questions in this passage. And my hope is that all of us will be greatly encouraged as we are once again reminded of of the scope and the power of God's mercy to us through Jesus Christ. But before we dig into this passage, there's one thing I want to address. And, And that is this. This is a very complex passage. It has been debated, the, the meaning and interpretation of this passage has been debated for centuries. And that debate is always centered around one question, and that question is this. Who is Paul actually talking about in this passage? And there are generally considered three options. One option is that Paul is talking about non-Christians here. He's talking about unbelievers. Another option is that he's talking about a new believer, or a very immature believer. And then the third option is that he's actually talking about a mature Christian, So these are the different options that people have taken over the years, and I don't really have time this morning to go through all of those different options and offer you all the reasons why people hold to different ones, and if that's something you really want to know or really interested in, just give me a call this week and we can get together and talk about it. But I just want you to be aware that that debate exists. If you read any commentary on this passage, listen to most sermons, you're going to hear that come up, and it's just important to be aware of that. Now, personally... I believe that Paul is actually talking about a mature believer in this passage. And more specifically, he's actually talking about himself. He's talking about his walk with the Lord. And that's the position that I'll be taking as we go through this passage together. So let's look at this passage. Up to this point, Paul spent the first five chapters of Romans defining and defending the doctrine of justification. And in chapter 6, he shifts gears and he starts talking about sanctification, which is the process of us becoming more like Christ, becoming holy. And along the way, he says some interesting things about the law of God. So here here are some examples. Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or Romans 5.20. Now the law comes to increase the trespass, or to increase sin. Romans 7.5. So right before this passage, Paul says this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law... We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And so because of statements like these, because of things that Paul has already said, he anticipates another question that his readers may have. And and it may be a question that we have. And that that question is found in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Or in other words, is the law sinful? That's his question. And his answer is, by no means. Paul uses that all the time. It's an emphatic no, no way. The law is not sinful. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. To show us this, Paul offers a defense of the law. First, he shows us that the law reveals sin. And we see this again at verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say that if it had not been for the law... I would not have sinned. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says that the law enables him to know what sin is. You see, the law exposes sin. The implication is that we were already sinning, but we just didn't realize it. And Paul has already made this point very clear early in Romans. He's told us over and over again that we are all sinners. There are none who are righteous. The problem is that all of us at one time or another, not only were we sinners... But we were blind to the fact that we were sinners. And that was true until God opened our hearts and he he revealed his law to us. And when that happened, sin was revealed. The law made us aware of what was already true. It made us aware of the fact that we are sinners. And Paul uses coveting as his particular personal example of the thing that God used to reveal his sin to him. So the law reveals sin. But not only does it reveal sin, it also provokes sin. Now that may seem strange to hear, but we see this in in verse 8. It says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. So sin uses the law of God to provoke us to sin even more. I said that's an unusual thing to think about. We don't probably think about the law in that way. And yet all of us know this is true. We all have seen examples of this. So let me just give you one example. If you were to tell your child, don't touch that, how would they respond? I must touch it. We have all seen this. Now, Drew, of course, is exempt from that, because when we adopted him, we asked for a sinless baby. (laughs) But no, we see that even in in the, the littlest ones. We see their sin nature at work. They do the very things we tell them not to do. Why is that? because the law stirs up the rebellion that is already in our hearts rebellion is part of our sinful nature sin wants to be sovereign in your life and the law of god exposes the fact that it is not sovereign and it will never be sovereign tim keller explains this well this is what he wrote we have a deep desire to be in charge of the wor- of the world and of our lives we want to be sovereign every law that god lays down is an infringement on our absolute sovereignty It reminds us that we are not God and prevents us from being sovereign to live as we wish. In its essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. Therefore, since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, to have no infringements on our sovereignty, every law will stir sin up in its original force and power. The more we are exposed to the law of God, the more that sinful force will be aggravated into reaction. So the sin, so sin, or the law provokes sin, and it reveals sin. But the law also condemns sin, and we see this in verses 9 through 11. And in these verses, Paul uses some interesting language about life and death. So let me try to summarize what he's saying here. You see, Paul believed that he, before he met Christ, he believed that he was spiritually alive. Or in other words, he believed that he had a right relationship with God because of how well he kept the law because of how well he kept the religious code. But the Holy Spirit came came to him, and Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And in doing so, he came to realize that that was not true. He came to realize that he was actually spiritually dead. He stood condemned before God according to the law. And here's why. If you want to earn God's favor by how well you keep his law, or by keeping his law, you must do it according to his requirements. You must keep the law according to his standard. And what is that standard? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that in Matthew 5:48. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard of law keeping that the Lord gives us. If you want to be saved by how well you keep the law, you must be perfect. You must be absolutely perfect. And none of us have kept the law perfectly, including the Apostle Paul. Not one of us has done that. So rather than being our salvation, the law actually condemns us. How does it condemn us? Well, the law does at least two things. It reveals the, the true character of God, and it also reveals our true character. And if you could put the chart up real quick. This is a chart I got years ago. It's very simple, but it's helpful. This is part of what the law does. Is as we grow to understand the law more and more, we get to see and understand the holiness of God as well as our sinfulness. And as those two things happen, we realize that the separation or the divide between God and us is even greater than we realized beforehand. So as we get to know the law, as we get to understand the law more and more, we see the holiness of God grow, and we see the sinfulness of man grow, but in the opposite direction. You can take that down, please. And we'll come back to that later on. The the law reveals sin, and it condemns us because of sin. And so once again, the problem is not the law. The problem is sin. And to bring his point home, Paul gives us verse 12, which says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that his answer to these initial questions is an emphatic no. The law is not sin. It, does not, it is not sinful. It is actually holy and righteous and good. So then Paul moves on to anticipate another question. And we find this in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? And once again, his answer is an emphatic no. The problem is not the law, it's us. Sin is what produces death. Look at the rest of the verse. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what does this mean? What does it mean that sin produces death through that which is good, or in this case, through the law? Well, sin is crafty. In this case, sin actually uses the law, something that is good and holy and righteous, to mislead us. Let me give you some examples of how this works. Probably the most obvious example, and this is the one that Paul came to realize for himself, is that sin will try to convince you that your real hope is found in how well you keep God's commandments. So sin's going to try to convince you that. that is what prob- that's what Paul's problem was before he was converted. He believed that he was justified by how well he kept God's law he was full of spiritual pride. And you can read about that in Philippians 3. But then Jesus, but then Paul met Jesus, and he realized that he stood condemned before God, and that Jesus was his only hope. And sin still works that way today. It works that way all around us. It will try to convince you that what really matters the most is that you try to be a good person. That's what's most important. You be a good person. You try to earn. God's going to like you. He's going to give you things as long as you're trying to follow him and be a good person. But the law reveals that that's impossible and that it actually leads to death. Now if that doesn't work, like I said, the law, the sin is crafty, sin will try to convince us, okay, if that didn't work, it's going to try to convince us no, the law is just too difficult. It's too harsh. And therefore, we should just give up. We shouldn't even try. Or maybe sin will try to convince us that no, the law is actually, it's too restrictive. It's not letting you have any fun. So, therefore, you should just abandon it. You should reject it. Because we want the good life after all, right? And, and, and the, God's law doesn't give us the good life. So these are some of the different ways that sin works and some of the different ways that sin uses the law to lead us away from God. But if it succeeds, it is actually leading us to death and to eternal destruction. You see, the law reveals the true nature of, And the true purpose of sin. And it reveals how sinful we really are. That is what Paul means when he says that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul's main point in these verses is this. And I've said this several times. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And because of sin, the law cannot save you. But it can reveal your sin. And it can also show us our need of a Savior, and it can point us to the one who can save. It points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law perfectly. This is the question I like to ask people at times, um, just whether it be in one-on-one or in Sunday school settings or whatever, and that is, are you saved by works? How would you answer that? It's a trick question, by the way, because the answer is yes and no. Or better yet, maybe no and yes. We are not saved by our works. We cannot save ourselves, but we are saved by the works of Jesus. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. He met God's standard, and then he died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for us. This is what justification is about, is our sins are removed from us, and we receive his perfect law-keeping. So when God looks at you, not only does he not see your sin, but he sees you as righteous. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. So we are justified. So the gospel sets us free from trying to earn God's favor based upon works. It sets us free from spiritual pride. Because your only hope is not in how well you keep the law. Your only hope is in Jesus. To accept his forgiveness and to accept his righteousness. Your hope is not in what you do. It is not found in the things that you don't do. It is found in believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Because a life that is centered upon keeping the law, a life that is centered upon good works, can only lead to despair and to frustration. But the gospel has set us free from this as well. And we find this in verses 14 through 23. In this passage, Paul provides us a glimpse into his own walk with the Lord. He provides us with a glimpse into his life. And particularly, he provides us with a glimpse into his struggle with indwelling sin. John Piper calls this description of Paul as as the divided man. That's what we see here, is that Paul is a divided man. Why is that? Well, Paul mentions several conflicts that are at work within him. There's the flesh versus the spirit. There is mind versus the flesh. There's the law versus sin. And then there's the the law of God versus the law of sin. All of these things are in conflict with one another within Paul. So what are we to make of all of that? Let's start by looking at how Paul uses the word "law." He uses the word "law" in this passage in three different ways. First, he uses it to represent the law of God. You'll see this in verses 14 and 16 and 22 and 25. He also uses law in the sense of the law of sin, and you see that in verses 23 and 25. And these are the two laws that are at war against each other. It's the law of God versus the law of sin. The law of God is at work in the renewed not mind of a believer. The Holy Spirit is the one that has revealed this law to us. He's the one that enables us to delight in the law of God. This law is holy and good. But then there's the law of sin. The law of sin is at work in our flesh. It wants to enslave us. It wants us to lead us away from God, to keep us from him. This law is evil. In this battle, this battle between the law of God and the law of sin, it rages on in the lives of every believer. There is not one of us that is exempt from this battle. And that is why Paul talks about a third law that is at work within him. And he describes this in verse 21. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So this law that Paul's talking about, it really is more of a, an operating principle that he sees working in his life. And this is a law that works in each of us as well. We see this principle at work within us right now. So to help us understand this a little bit further, he unpacks this in verses 15 through 21. Look at some of the ways that Paul describes himself in this passage. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Or a little bit later, he says, I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Or again, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Or finally, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the Apostle Paul. He's saying these things about himself. That is one of the reasons why I love this passage. Because normally, I would not compare myself to the Apostle Paul. His faith is so much greater than mine. His zeal for the gospel and for the lost is far greater than my own. But I can relate to him in this passage. I'm constantly doing the things I don't want to do. I'm constantly not doing the things that I know are good, that I have a desire to do, but for some reason, I cannot carry them out. Do you ever feel that way? Do you see that this principle at work in your life? Do you see this law working in your life? Here's another way to think about it. I'm sure we've all seen you know, cartoons where there's a char- the main character is, has a big decision before him, and all of a sudden, pop, on one shoulder comes a devil. And pop, on the other shoulder comes an angel, and they're whispering in his ear, and the devil is saying, no, you need to make the wrong decision, you need to go down that path, because that's going to be the one that is the most fun, and you're going to enjoy the most, where the angel is whispering in his ear, saying, no, you need to make the right choice, you need to do what is right. And what inevitably happens? They listen to the devil character, they follow that path, and then they later regret it. Well, in a sense, that is what Paul is saying here. Because we all have two laws that work in us. We have the law of God and the law of sin. The law of God is at work in in, in showing us that true joy, true happiness, true peace and love are found only in our relationship with God. Therefore, we must pursue Him. We must seek to deepen our relationship with Him. But while that's whispering in our ears, we also have the law of sin telling us that no, 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 no. If you really, really want to be happy, you need to reject God. You need to follow your own way. And the reality is that sometimes we listen to the law of sin, don't we? That we choose to follow that path. Why do we do that? Well, look at verse 23. Paul says, the law of sin still dwells in our members. Or another way you can word that is, the law of sin still dwells in our flesh. How is that possible? After all, aren't we free from the dominion of sin? Haven't we been set free from sin? This is what we've been going through the last several weeks. Well, the answer is yes and no. We have been set free. We have been set free from the dominion and condemnation of sin. We are new creations that have been given the Holy Spirit, that we we belong to the Lord, but we have still retained our fallen sinful flesh. That is why this war still rages within us. William Hendrickson explains this well. He he says says this, that there was once a time when we were exclusively a sinner, and there will come a time where we will be exclusively a saint, but right now we live in the tension between those two times as sinner-saints. We live in the midst of this tension. So yes, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, if you have faith in him, you are forgiven. You have been justified. You are being sanctified. But here's another truth. If you are a Christian, you will sin. Essence talked about this several times over the last few weeks. If you remember, he's used that phrase that as a Christian, you will not be sinless, but you will sin less. You've been set free from sin. But that freedom will not be fully realized until we die and go to be with the Lord. That's why Paul can say with absolute confidence in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Jesus has already been victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And all who trusted in him, we have been set free. But we will not realize and experience that full freedom until we pass from this life and are with the Lord. But here's the good news, is that freedom, that victory has already been secured by Christ. It is guaranteed. This is not some wishful thinking. It is ours now. So we don't need to lose hope. We can continue. We will continue to sin, and we will continue to do the very things that we don't want to do, and not do the very things that we want to do. And when that happens, how should we respond? With our struggle with sin, when we do fall into sin, how should we respond? Well, once again, we could despair. We could just quit. Or we could respond in a similar fashion to the way that Paul responds. Look at his response in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This, once again, is the Apostle Paul. And he calls himself wretched man. Here's the mission Later on today, if someone asks you how you're doing, say you're wretched. It's biblical. Why does he do this? Why does Paul call himself wretched? It's important that this is not a, to see that this is not a cry of despair. It is one of desperation. It is one of distress and of dependence. Paul hates the fact that, sin, that the law of sin is still at work in him. And he longs for that day when Christ will finally bring him home and Christ's victory will be fully realized. This cry, this cry of Paul, it really should be the cry of every Christian's heart as we continue to struggle with the sin. Listen to what John Piper says about this. He says this, nobody should want to live this way or settle to live this way. That's not the point. The point is that when you do live this way, meaning you do struggle with sin, this is the Christian response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no posing, No vaunted perfectionism. Give us the honesty and candor and humility of the Apostle Paul. Is that the cry of your heart when you sin? Do you hate and mourn over your sin? Do you long for that day when sin will be no more? Or have you just simply become immune to it? Let us pray that the Lord will give us fresh eyes so that we can see the depth of our sinfulness... Why would we want to pray something like that? Why would we want to know and see the depth of our sin? Well, look at where Paul goes. He calls himself wretched. He cries out to the Lord, Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then we get his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been delivered already by Jesus. All of our past sins, all of our present sins, and all of our future sins have all been forgiven. Yes, we will still sin. But sin will never get the upper hand. It has already been defeated at the cross. We have been justified. We are being sanctified and we will be glorified. Sin can't stop any of that. Now it is true, Paul does end with a summary of all of this in verse 25 when he says that we still serve the law of God with our mind. With our flesh we serve the law of sin. And as Christians, you will always live with that tension. There's no escaping it. But we live in this tension with great hope and peace because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of him, we can delight in the law because it will help us see our sin. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does it help us see our sin, but it helps us see what Christ has done for us. So if you could put that chart up again. This is what it does. As we recognize the holiness of God and our sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger in our lives. And that's why it's a good thing. We realize that, yes... Sin has separated us from God. God is holier than we realized. We are more sinful than we realized. And in doing so, we exalt Christ all the more because we realize that through him we have been reconciled. That he bridges that gap in our lives. Thank you. You can turn that down. So because of Jesus, when we do sin, and every one of us will, we can cry out to God. We can cry out with the same cry as Paul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But don't stop there. Remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus has already been victorious over sin and death. That through him there is forgiveness for your sins. That there is now no condemnation for those who have sinned. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to have a great opportunity here in just a moment as we come to the table to remember what Jesus has done for us. That through his body and his blood we have been set free. We have been forgiven that we have been delivered, and that we will realize and experience that full deliverance, that full freedom, when we go to him in heaven. Jesus has delivered you from the dominion and condemnation of sin, and he will deliver you from your body of death. But until that happens, we are going to live in this tension. This war is going to be raging within us, and we are called with the help of the Holy Spirit, and by God's grace, to continue to fight the good fight. And to not be afraid to confess our sins and to turn to Jesus, knowing that in him and him alone is our only hope. So don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in your own wisdom to figure things out. Look to Jesus, for he has already paid the price for those sins. And through him and him alone, we have hope. And as we go along that process of confessing and of repenting and of looking to Jesus, as we go through that process, as we fight this battle and we realize that the separation between God and us is even greater than we realized. We will continue again and again to exalt Jesus, to magnify the cross of Christ, and to glorify him. So let us pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word, but more importantly, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus did meet your standard of perfection, that he lived perfectly in perfect obedience that He was righteous, and that He went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sinners such as us. And that through His life, death, and resurrection, all who have come to trust in Him, we will not perish, but will receive eternal life, that we are and have been justified, that we are being sanctified, and we have the hope that we will be glorified. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know You, that does not have the hope that is found in Christ alone, that's trying to earn their favor based upon how well... They keep your law about being simply a good person. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts, that, you, that through your law they would come to see their sin and that they would come to see their need of Jesus and they would call upon him in faith. And for those of us who are trusting in him, as we do live in this tension, as we continue to wrestle with sin, Lord, I pray that we would not lose hope, that we would not despair. But as we see the, the depth of our sin more and more as we understand that We are even more separated from you than we realize. May we also look to the cross and realize that through Jesus, we have been reconciled, that we are your children. And may that give us great hope and peace and comfort. Lord, we do thank you for the church. We thank you for Tabernacle. We thank you for the work that you're doing.